The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome you all here in the name of Jesus Christ, and thank you again for being here this morning. Uh, If you are tuning in on our live stream, welcome, or watching or listening back later, uh, we're glad you're tuning in. And I say this often, but visitors... We're honored by your presence, and we are thankful to have you here with us and that you've chosen to worship with us and hopefully uh, get to know us, and we would like a chance to, to get to know you as well, um, if you wouldn't mind sticking around afterwards. Uh, but we are continuing our sermon series this morning, You Are What You Love, and in fact, after this morning, uh, we have just two sermons left from this series, so we are actually kind of winding things down uh, this morning, and so we're going to start that winding down in Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 is where we're going to be spending some time. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we approach your throne this morning together, and we praise you as the God of all good gifts. God, you are true and beautiful and good, and everything true and beautiful and good comes from you. And we just want to approach you with gratitude in our hearts and giving thanks for all that you've provided. God, we ask for the gift of your presence this morning and the gift of your Holy Spirit. I ask for the gift of preaching, and I ask that you would open our eyes and ears to the sights and sounds of your gospel. We love you, Lord, and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. In April of last year... A team of economists from around the world published a study called, it was actually called Status Goods Experimental Evidence from Platinum Credit Cards. And the basic question that these economists were asking in this study was, do credit card marketing gimmicks work? So when when a credit card company offers you a card and they describe it as exciting or elite or prestigious, does that help people take up the cards? Do they buy into it more? And so they did this in two experiments, and the first one was very simple. They took two groups of people, and they described the exact same credit card to them, same features and benefits and everything, except one group they included in the name of the card the word Platinum. And guess which of these two groups, non-platinum and platinum, was significantly more interested in taking this card with the exact same benefits and features? 
It was, of course, the Platinum Group. But the, the second experiment that they did, which I think is even more interesting, is they took a group of people who were Platinum Card holders. They had a Platinum Card, and they offered them a costly upgrade to a Diamond Card. Now again, exact same benefits and features on each of these cards. The only difference was that it was an expensive upgrade from Platinum to Diamond, and it's called Diamond instead of Platinum. But in this group, they also took a portion of those people and told them that their current platinum card, that the, the threshold of income to qualify for that card was going to be lowered. So, so that more poor people, lower income people, were going to be able to get in on this platinum card, essentially saying that its status was being lowered. And the people who were told that information jumped up to the diamond card by almost double. Double. Exact same cards, exact same benefits, it just costs more and it's called diamond. And so what these economists confirmed for us, I think is something that we knew intuitively. And that is that economics is not a thinking endeavor. It's a desiring endeavor. Economics doesn't just happen up at the head level. It's not just all about rationality. In fact, one would say that jumping to a diamond card that's more expensive and offers no benefits is highly illogical. But we don't operate on logic. Economics is a desiring thing. It happens not just at the head level, but at the heart-gut level. And I think we all know this intuitively. And I also hope that we know this because this is what we've been talking about. For a couple months now, you are what you love. And so in this sermon series, we've been talking about, well, how does Christian worship shape our loves? You know, if, if economics hits us here, at the heart and gut, if politics hits us here, if, if culture and entertainment and all these things hit us here, well, how does worship shape us in this region? How does worship form and direct our loves, wants, and desires, and how does it point them toward the kingdom of God? And that's what we've been asking in You Are What You Love, and that's what we're going to continue asking this morning. And, and last week, if you were here, uh, Ben asked this question in the context of table. Uh, we talked about the Lord's Supper and, and economics, actually. We talked a bit about our, our needs versus our wants and consumption. And this morning, in uh, true Church of Christ fashion, uh, if, if we talked about economics and the Lord's Supper last week, this morning, separate and apart... We'll be talking about economics and the offering. So we're talking about the offering, and if you are someone who's been unchurched, or maybe you're a non-Christian here, or you're just new to Christianity, uh, when we say offering, we're talking about that moment in every service, uh, and it's done in different ways in different churches, where we come and we bring our gift to the altar, to the table. 
And so in, in our congregation, we, uh, we've got these wonderfully, uh, beautifully woven baskets that we got from Rwanda, and we will uh, come up, and you, you come forward as you're coming to the table, and you will bring your tithe or your gift or your offering um, to the basket. And in other congregations, maybe you grew up this way, um, it's, it's the passing of the plate, You know, that's how I grew up. It's passing the plates across the row, and there's this kind of awkward moment of, like, trying not to look at who's putting what in, and and you're you're kind of just trying to be uh, nondescript, and there's also, you know, this jangling of change that's kind of muffled by the guitars or the vocals, Um, but there's also children involved, uh, you know, dollar bills and notes and checks are pressed into the hands of kids who come and give what's really not theirs for really they know not what. <laughs> but this is one of our rhythms. This, this is one of our rhythms, offering. And, and many churches, most all churches do this at least once a week. They take up this collection for the work of the church. But it's an economic moment. And it's an economic moment that, that embodies an alternative economy. It, it's, it doesn't work the same that, that the other transactions we have outside of these walls work. Right? In fact, it's not a transaction. It doesn't really operate in commodities. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a relationship established upon love and faithfulness, and and it's an exchange of gifts. So so it embodies this alternative economy that that Ben talked about last week. So the question that I want to focus in on this morning is how does that alternative economy that, that we enact in the offering, how does that play itself out in our church life? How do we actually embody and live out the economy that we see happening in these gifts given at the offering? And so we're going to do that by, by digging further into our text, into Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you want to turn back to Acts 2 verse 42, Luke says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is an amazing little portrait of the earliest Christians that Luke gives us. And one of the things I want to focus on is in verse 42, that word fellowship. Um, That's actually a Greek word that's already been spoken in our assembly this morning. It's koinonia. So we've got our koinonia room at the back of the gymnasium. That's our fellowship room. But what we need to know about koinonia in this passage is that it's a much more muscular term 
than what we usually think of as fellowship in the English language. You know, this isn't just a, yeah, Ryan and I are going to try and hang out later this Thursday kind of fellowship. You know, this isn't just somebody bought Papa John's for Connections Group kind of fellowship. This koinonia, this fellowship in Acts chapter 2 is a shared life together. It's a life held completely in common in every way. And in fact, the koinonia of verse 42 is really enacted, it's really demonstrated specifically by the distribution of the goods, by the selling of the possessions in verses 44 and 45. And so, so this earliest Christian community that, that Luke paints a picture for us, they, it was founded upon this radical life of sharing and fellowship, a radical life of koinonia. Now, if you're not paying attention to the New Testament, not my sermon, but now I've got you. If you're not paying attention to the New Testament, this passage can jump out at you. I mean, this is a starkly different picture, the economics of this church, than, than ours, than most churches. You know, this is a, a very different idea, this selling of all the possessions and sharing and having everything in common. So if you're not paying attention to the New Testament, this can kind of shock you. But if you're paying attention to the New Testament, I would say that almost nothing about the New Testament community is as consistent with the teachings of Jesus and the rest of Scripture as a whole. For instance, just kind of skimming the surface here, just hitting the highlights, Matthew to Revelation bears passionate witness to the economic imperatives of the gospel. Let me say that again. From Matthew to Revelation, the New Testament bears passionate witness to how we as the church handle money if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ. And so hitting the highlights in, in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothes. Instead, he says what? Pray for your daily bread. Pray for your daily bread. And then in Mark chapter 10, when the rich man comes to Jesus and says, hey, I've kept all the commandments. I've kept them all. And Jesus says, okay, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man walks away disappointed, Jesus says to him, how hard, he says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And moving on to the, the gospel of Luke, the writer of Acts. Uh, Luke says in, in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus blesses the poor. And he says the kingdom of God is yours. But then he says, but woe to you who are rich. For you've received your consolation. And a few chapters later, Jesus actually says, point blank, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up 
all your possessions. And this isn't just limited to the Gospels. We see this Matthew to Revelation. We see it in Paul in, in 1 Timothy quite famously. Uh, he says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. However, I would say the harshest words for the wealthy in the New Testament probably come to us from the book of James. He says, come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. And if all that were not enough to, I think, make all of us squirm a little bit in our seats this morning, Luke expands that portrait of the New Testament church that he gives us in Acts 2. A couple chapters later, he, he gives us some more details. He says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and, brought and bought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now I know each of these texts has a context. And each of these texts deserve a, a careful exegesis, interpretation, and application to our lives. And I also know that there are other narratives in the New Testament that present somewhat different faithful responses to the call of the gospel economically. There's, there's Zacchaeus, who uh, doesn't actually sell all that he has when he repents and follows Jesus. He just sells half, just And so I know that, that living out the New Testament ethics and discerning what those ethics are is not a simple thing. But I think we can safely gather from the weight of these texts that whatever kind of alternative economy the kingdom of God is calling us to, we have fallen woefully short. Whatever kind of economy the kingdom of God has called us to, we have fallen woefully short. If, if you are what you love, if we are what we love, 
then our current economic practices, our giving practices, our status quo regarding money and finances and resources as the church does not quite line up with the New Testament picture that we get. You know, if you belong to the Church of Christ, if you've kind of grown up in this stream, what, what has our guiding principle been from day one? You know, we've always been about getting back to the first century church. You know, let's, let's read the Bible, let's read the New Testament afresh, let's find the, the basic principles, the clear themes, and let's try to live according to those principles as clearly as we can. And reading these texts this morning, and specifically the ones from Acts, I have to think to myself, what a tragic part of the picture for us to leave out. You know, what a tragically convenient part of the picture for us to leave out. In, in fact, if, if you've lived among our church for years or you've been uh, harmed or gone in need, what a tragically inconvenient part of the picture for us to leave out. So, so church, it's not simple to discern, but however we're supposed to live out these texts, I think we can agree that we've fallen short of what Jesus would call us to. And he calls us to more. And Christian worship calls us to more, doesn't it? Christian worship calls us to something better. And in short, worship calls us to a reconciled economy. Worship calls us to a reconciled economy. So when I use the word reconciled, I'm, I'm kind of using it in a couple different contexts, but the one I'm, I'm getting at is for you accountants. You accountants out there, when, when you talk about reconciliation, what is that? Reconciliation is balancing the books. You know, it's, it's looking at the accounts payable, it's looking at the accounts received, it's making sure everything is squared away, that there's no discrepancies, it's to guard against theft. And so when we talk about reconciliation as a church, what are some of the discrepancies we see in our books? You know, when I've got two coats and Kelly Osborne has zero, there's a theft. You know, when I've got an open spare bedroom and Dara and Jason have been evicted, there's a discrepancy. When there are discrepancies in the kingdom, when, when people go in need, then someone is cooking the kingdom books. Someone's been cooking the kingdom's books. But we're better than that. Remember from Ephesians? Remember, we're not just a voluntary association of like-minded people. We're a faithful association of reconciled people. And part of that reconciliation is Jesus breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. 
So there's no longer Jew nor Greek. There's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer a dividing wall of economic hostility. We could say there's no longer poor nor rich. There's one new humanity in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of alternative economy that we've been called to, and that's the kind of alternative economy that we embody in the offering. The offering is where we come and learn about the reconciled economy. It's where we grasp it at a heart and gut level. It's where we we bring a gift, not a transaction, but, but as a covenant response of gratitude to the God who has reconciled us to one another and to him. The offering is where we learn to love our kingdom less and God's kingdom more. I had another illustration I wanted to use this morning, but I don't think we have time. And frankly, I'd rather not spend any more time on somebody else's story when we can get to our story. What's our story going to be, Springs? What's the story of our economy, of our use of resources, of our use of property and wealth going to be? Is it going to look like Acts 2? Is it going to respond imaginatively? Because that is what worship is about. It's about restoring our imaginations so that we can respond with, with creativity, with passion to what we believe the New Testament calls us to. And frankly, to, to be able to do that it would take an enormous effort of self-sacrifice to to live out the New Testament ethic regarding wealth, regarding possessions, would take an enormous act of self-renunciation. In short, it would take an act that was modeled after the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ on the cross shows us what self-sacrifice looks like. Jesus on the cross shows us what self-renunciation looks like. Jesus shows us what it means to love someone so much that you would empty yourself just to fill them. Have you looked to that cross? Have you looked to that cross not just for salvation, but also for reconciliation to God, to one another? in every area of our lives. Let's write that story, church. Let's write that story and let's stand and praise him together this morning.